Generation Z Futurist Podcast by Arsa Marduk, the youngest futurist in the world. The first member of World Future Studies Federation Junior. And the founder of Generation Z Futurist Movement and Platform. Hi everybody, I am Arsam and this is the second episode of Gen Z Futurists Podcast. Today, in the first part of the podcast, I want to talk about Teach the Future organization, which they teach students in schools about futures thinking. In the second part of the podcast, I will talk to Dr. Peter Bishop, the founder of Teach the Future. So stay with me. First, let me tell you how I became interested in the future and learning about it. Two years ago, I didn't know anything about the future until my stepfather, Dana Marduk, came to our life. He was so passionate about future of technologies and told me and my mom a lot of interesting things about the future of technologies and, uh, and the future of life. I had many questions and the more he answered my questions, the more I wanted to learn about the future. In the next episode, I will tell you why and how I decided to learn more about the future and why I'm trying to become a professional futurist. So let's see what each the future is, who they are and what their goal is. In their website, uh, they say that Teach the Future is a non-profit organization dedicated to bringing foresight and futures thinking to schools and students around the world. They believe that young people of any age can learn to think critically and creatively about the future. They also believe that by giving young people the tools to engage with the future early in life, they are equipping them to face uncertainties and challenges and helping them discover their role in shaping the future. They say that education is meant to prepare students for the future, something we can only do well if we teach the future itself. I think this is so true about education. If we are not prepared for the future, if we are not prepared for the new job market, if we are not prepared for the new world of exponential change, then why we should go to school and waste our time there? In the second part of this episode, I will talk to Dr. Peter Bishop, futurist and founder of Teach the Future organization. Uh, Peter C. Bishop is a professional futurist, a retired associate, professor of strategic foresight, and the former director of the graduate program in Future Studies at the University of Houston. Peter Bishop is founder and executive director of Teach the Future, and he has written teaching about the future with his colleague Andy Hines. Today, we will talk to Dr. Peter Bishop about his Teach the Future organization and why children should learn about the future thinking, challenges, and opportunities, and many more things. Hello, Dr. Peter Bishop. 
I'm very excited to have you on Gen Z Futurist Podcast. Welcome. Hello, Arsa. I'm glad to be here. So, Peter, please tell us when was the first time you heard about future studies? And when did you start to study about the future? Well, that's a good question, Arsa. Um, I was reading books about the future uh, when it really first became public in the late 1960s. Um, there were um, books by Alvin Toffler about, called Future Shock. Uh, Paul Ehrlich uh, wrote a book called Population Bomb. And uh, Donella Meadows and her people uh, wrote a book called The Limits to Growth. Uh, those are very popular books at, 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 during my time there. I was in, in graduate school when I was reading those. Uh, at the time, I didn't know that there was a field called Future Studies. In fact, there really wasn't one at that time. But early in the 1970s, uh, without my knowledge, Jim Dater started the Hawaii uh, Center for Futures Research and at the University of Hawaii. And then I moved to teach statistics at the University of Houston, and they had already established a degree program in future studies. So I realized that there was a degree about this field. And actually, February of 1976, when I was interviewing the dean uh, for that job in Houston. Okay, that's very interesting. So um, how old were, were you when you became a futurist? Oh, now, <laughs> now you're asking very intimate questions here. Uh, 1976, I would have been 32 years old. Mm, okay. So what is Teach the Future and uh, how and when did you start it? Um, Teach the Future is a nonprofit organization uh, that I established after I retired from the University of Houston. Uh, its purpose is to encourage and support educators who want to include futures thinking in their classes and schools. Um, a colleague of mine and I started talking to teachers, and we did a summer camp when she was on the faculty at the University of Houston, kind of between 2009 and 2011. Uh, we did some workshops together, and, and kind of that was really the first official start, but there was no organization at that time. Uh, she went back to Ohio mm -hmm. and, and uh, continued teaching economics. And so that kind of went away for a while. And then I started doing a little bit when I retired in 2013, but I really started the company in 2015, January of 2015. So the company is about five years old. That's awesome. And so your focus is on teaching teachers so that they can prepare students to learn about futures. Am I correct? Exactly. That's a very good way of putting it. Yes. And so let's talk about MTP a little or Massive Transformative Purpose. And as you might know, Gen Z Futurists' um, MTP is to disrupt the education system and teach 1 billion children from Generation Z about future studies and help them to become great leaders for their countries. And I would like to know what is the Teach the Futures MTP or long-term vision? Well, it's very similar. It's not focused on Gen Z, though that's part of our, our uh, uh, the target audience for Teach the Future, but it's to include all of the um, uh, all futures in all of the schools around the world as an, as an obvious uh, 
part of their curriculum, which is pretty massive and it's pretty transformative, we believe. And so we have a very similar mm -hmm. MTP as you do. Okay, yes, exactly. so I guess we're on the same page, kind of. <laughs> um, so you have written an amazing playbook for children called Futures Thinking, which teachers can, pl uh, can play the games at schools and teach students about futures. But what is interesting for me is to know about the feedback you get from teachers and students when they learn about futures, especially based on your book. So please share with us the most important important experiences you have during these well, I years. Wish the, first of all, I wish, the, the I wish I had more feedback and I wish people were using the book more. It's been received uh, pretty well. People think it's an excellent approach to the future. Uh, and those people that have purchased it uh, have used it. It has not gotten into classrooms very much yet. I think not because the book itself is not useful. I think it is very useful, but that teachers uh, don't believe that they know how to teach the future, and so they're reluctant to use it. Um, it's not something that they have been trained to do, and they, they obviously, and as professionals, They want to be able to do a good job with whatever they do do, and yet uh, they don't know how to teach the future. So just picking up the Futures Thinking playbook uh, is not really sufficient for most teachers because they don't have the background to actually fill in and explain and teach the whole process. So we do not have a lot of feedback. Those, those students that have used it and teachers that have used it We usually get very excellent feedback that it really does help them think about important questions, to do research on trends, uh, and to use their imagination in coming up with alternative futures and scenarios. So the feedback we've gotten, though limited, has been excellent. Good. And, well, I myself have read the book, and I think it's very interesting and amazing and has a lot of important information. And I, I hope that this book goes to other schools, so other children can learn about this. And unfortunately, there are hundreds of universities and, and institutions and centers only for adults. And uh, these have been out there for decades uh, and even maybe more, but except your Teach the Future, uh, I haven't seen a professional center that focuses on teaching children about futures thinking. And what is the reason and why do you think we should teach children about futures? Well, let me start with the second question first. Uh, there is a fair amount of education going on in the world today about the future for adults. Uh, as you mentioned, we do have universities that are teaching this. There are perhaps Uh, maybe between five and 10 graduate degrees, which you could call degrees in future studies around the world. Uh, we have about the same number of organized what we call certificate or continuing education courses for adults, people who are in jobs now and who will want to learn how to do scenario development and strategic planning. Uh, and there are, so we're, we're dealing with, in some cases, I would say hundreds of adults per year, which is still a tiny proportion of all the adults in the world, but it's not zero and it's not a small number. Uh, there are no universities yet that have focused on teaching children the future or young students the future, 
because universities tend to be very conservative. They only teach those things which have been taught before or things which the world is asking them to teach right now with some degree of urgency. So universities do create new degree programs. For instance, we've created computer science in the last 30 or 40 years. We've created biotechnology. We've created art, you know, programs in artificial intelligence, uh, all kinds of different things. But there was a demand from the world to say, look, we need people who are educated and trained in these fields. The world has not yet told the universities that it's time to start teaching the future. And so the university uh, is, does not see the need for it, nor does it see the market for it. So we don't have a university yet that is focused on teaching future to all of its students, um, and certainly, most importantly, to teach the teachers while they are in school to teach the future when they get into schools. Now, let me back up. There's, there are two exceptions to what I just said. There is a university in Taipei, Taiwan, Tam Kang University. It's a private university owned by and founded by a, a very important person in Taiwan. And he has required every student in that university, some thousands of students, to take a futures course. That's wonderful. And I'm glad he's done that. We also have a colleague in the Netherlands, in Holland, who, who is, has run workshops for teachers to, te to learn how to teach the future. I don't know that those workshops are part of their regular, their required curriculum in, uh, in, the, in that area, but uh, there is one university in, in the Netherlands is doing that. We have some universities that have required courses, not degrees, but a course. Notre Dame University in the United States is a very famous university, ex excellent university, and every student in the business school there is required to take a foresight course during their third year, third or four years. So those are the kinds of places that are using the future and teaching the future on a regular basis, but there are very few of those around the world. Yeah, and that's why we need more organizations like Teach the, uh, Teach the Future and Gen Z Futurists uh, Movement and Platform to have more people to learn about future studies and also um, kids. But why do you think, uh, why, why do they think there is no market for futurists? Because we really need um, many in business. Well, the, there is a market for people to deal with the future. But the way they deal with it is the way we dealt with it in the 20th century, not in the 21st century. We believe that the, the rate of change has increased. Which, and that the, therefore the frequency of disruptions, indeed like the current coronavirus crisis, are becoming more frequent and more important with larger consequences. And so we need to change our approach to the future. So they're still teaching the future as though it were a continuation of the past through the present into the future. So econ economists and other people forecasts using models and equations which are to some extent useful, but they don't take disruption. They don't take alternative futures into account. The university has not yet realized that it needs to change its way of teaching about the future 
to conform to the needs of the world of this century versus the world of the last century. Okay, since you already started to talk about the coronavirus, um, let's talk about the effects of the coronavirus on the education system. But before that, um, I would want to know what do you feel like living in the worst scenario that futurists have ever written about a pandemic? And because of the COVID-19, most of the world is in lockdown for about a month or maybe even more in some places. And for me, it's like a sci-fi movie or like the movie Contagion that I watched a few days ago. And I feel like we all are living in that kind of movie. There have been movies and books about uh, the outbreak of this kind of a virus. A very famous book that was written, I think, in the 1980s was called The Andromeda Strain by Michael Crichton. It was really a landmark book about that. A movie came out called Outbreak, uh, starring Dustin Hoffman, and it was very similar to this scenario. Those were actually, if I remember correctly, much more devastating than this virus has been so far. Uh, it has disrupted, this virus has disrupted the world's economy. It's disrupted people's individual lives, obviously disrupted schools and businesses. Uh, but the amount of people who have actually suffered, and certainly those that have died from this virus, is considerably less, and we expect it to be less, than, say, the influenza that ran around the world in 1918 and 1919. Tens of millions of people died of that virus, and we don't expect it to be that serious this time, so we certainly hope not. So it's not the worst that we've experienced, though it is in our lives the worst, perhaps. It's not the worst that has been true in history, and it's not the worst as it's been de depicted in fiction, of, of literature, of novels, and, and movies that way. But it is serious nevertheless. So we are in a scenario that we talked about in general, but nobody really took it seriously enough to, be, to do perhaps the level of preparation that was necessary to be able to combat this virus. So we are struggling to catch up. We're not probably not as ready as we could have been had we taken those books, those movies, and indeed what futurists talked about pandemics and have been talking about for decades, they not we've not taken that seriously enough to be as well prepared as we could be. Well, I hope that this virus goes away quickly um, as possible, and we can find a vaccine and a, uh, or a cure for this disease. And um, I hope that it will not get worse. But how long do you think this um, virus will continue? Well, I'm a futurist, Arsam, so I'm going to give you alternative scenarios. Um, there are places in the world that were hit very strongly, uh, China, for instance, and it contained the people in that particular city very severely, and they stamped out most of the virus or kept it from spreading throughout the country very aggressively. So that's one scenario is that we work very hard to confine people who are infected, either in a city or in their own homes or in hospitals, and therefore they're not, they're not capable of transmitting it to another group. So if that happens, then the, the number of infections will presumably go down. 
as will the hospitalizations, as will the deaths. There is an alternative scenario, of course, is that that's not permanent. So some people are talking about a second wave of the virus. If after the summer, there are a lot of people who are not immune and who are still susceptible, it's called, open to the virus, and we don't have measures to protect those people in the, in the many months ahead before a vaccine is created, then we could have another wave of this virus in the fall. Uh, the vaccine is expected, say, let's say within a year or so, which is spring of next year. If that vaccine works, then everybody gets vaccinated the way we do for the normal influenza. And the incidence of this disease becomes just like the normal flu, which it is, is, is there. Some people get it, uh, but very few people die from it. Uh, or if the vaccine does not work and we're in a continual state of getting infected and, and having people go to the hospital. So we have multiple scenarios. I'm not a, a public health person. I'm not an epidemiologist. And even those professions have disagreements, which they should because it's, it's uncertain. This is what we do as futurists. We don't put the uncertainty away and say, oh, well, it's all going to be over by May 1st, or it's all going to be over by the summer, or it's all going to be over by this time next year. We don't know that. And so we leave these scenarios. We don't answer the question that you asked. Here's when I think it's going to be. We lay out what the alternatives are. So, um, I hope that the government and people get prepared for the worst scenario because anything is possible. Even the things that, that people think is impossible is possible. Anything can happen. So because of the virus, now many kids uh, are learning online. And what do you think are the pros and cons of online learning? And do you think one day the whole education system will go online or no? Well, again, I'm a futurist. I will give you alternatives or some degree of, of what this is. Um, first of all, one assumption is that there is no uh, substitute for face-to-face -face communication. That's the way we communicate uh, in our species as humans. It is, uh, we have not only our voice, but our, but our image in front of people. We can make gestures. We can show facial expressions. We can communicate with body language. There are psychologists and communication experts who claim that we communicate mostly, not through words, but through appearance and, and language and intone, intonations and things like that. So online learning, even with if you have video, is restricted. It's like talking through a telephone, which is not very good. You can hear what people say, but the tone of their voice and, and all kinds of other things get, uh, get mixed up. So it's not ideal, but on the other hand, it does allow us, as we are today, learning to have a podcast across many, many miles, which would be totally impossible if we did not have this online environment. So the online environment allows us to do some things better, which is, of course, to reach many more people, and some things not as good which is that the communication is not as complete, it's not as full, and it's not as rich. Uh, I, uh, one of the, uh, the things we did at the University of Houston uh, in the early 2000s, about 15 years ago, realizing that we had a program 
a degree which many, many people in the world would like to learn from and would like to take the degree, but they could not come to Houston because they had family and they had jobs and things like that. So we worked very hard over the space of five or six years to take every one of our courses and put it online. On the one hand, we did not have people in, and we had some people in classrooms during that time and some people online simultaneously. We had class every week and people would either come to the classroom or they would dial in to a platform like this with video and participate in the class. It did not allow for the kind of rich discussions that, uh, that we would have if everybody were together in a classroom. But we also created a set of assignments, activities, and term projects that people turned in every week so that they were active, they were engaged all week long in every single lesson. And in that sense, I actually knew a lot more about what people were doing in their homework, in their activities, than I did when it was in a regular class where we only had one or two tests and one or two papers every semester. So there was a disadvantage in terms of verbal communication, was not as rich, but I got a lot more information and gave a lot more feedback to people as they turned things in. And I would say, yeah, this is good, or this needs to be improved and things like that. So it was a form of learning actually, which in many ways was better than what we had when we were all in the classroom together in Houston. So that there can be advantages to online education, even for younger students, not university graduate students, uh, meaning that they are not so much waiting and listening to a teacher tell them what they should know, but they have more independence, they have more assignments, they do more on their own, and they learn not just the material, but they learn how to learn, they learn how to do research, they learn how to do things, which in, unfortunately in many schools, mostly students are just listening, taking notes, and taking tests. So this could actually open up a lot more self-directed, a lot more student responsibility for learning on their own. Now, the problem is that students, particularly older students, are not used to that. And so they will have a tough time. They will not, in fact, many of them will not even like that. Although we think, oh, individual responsibility, that would be wonderful. Uh, that's not so hot if you don't know how to do it and don't get a good grade doing it. So we, the transition, if we move to more online learning, which, of course, I presume we will, there will be a huge learning curve for both teachers and students to figure out how to do this well. Um, that's very interesting, interesting experience. And, well, I guess online learning still needs to get better. But what do you think about using the technologies like AI, AR, and VR in the education system? Do you think they will help to learn better and faster or no? Uh, there, again, there are two answers to that question. Uh, one is that uh, it takes a human intervention to learn anything that's complicated, anything that's deep. You don't learn philosophy or how to be a good business person or how to be a good engineer simply by doing problems and writing papers, reading books, and, and getting grades. You have to be in interaction with a person. 
Now, then interaction can be face-to-face -face in the traditional classroom. It can be online, as we are doing here. It can be with video and all of those. So those are all helpful. When it comes to learning what we might call the basics, uh, the basics of math, the basics of science, the basics of history, there is an argument to be made that an AI that reads through and knows and analyzes millions and millions of student responses to a particular lesson can come up with an algorithm that gives the student guidance. Well, you, that was good, but you need to do more work on this or you need to review this piece. Uh, I think the more basic the information is the, that the AI, when we get them developed, could actually be a help and in some ways do better than an individual teacher in teaching those basics. When you get into more complex skills, however, I, I doubt that an AI is going to be able to do as well because that requires much more customization. On the other hand, we have yet to really factor in very advanced AIs. So there could be, they could take over, they've just taken over already a lot of tasks that we believe humans had to do, they don't do that. And the, the humans do not have to do those anymore. And so the AI, we don't know what the top level is. When does it level off? When does it reach its limit of capability, which almost every technology does and will eventually. That's a long way off. So we don't know the answer to how much it will influence the educational delivery of, of, of learning in schools in the future. Awesome. So, interesting thing, uh, thing to know about is that, um, according to Rick Roswell, if we reach a singularity in 2029, then our brain can be connected to AI. So at least we do not need to memorize anything, and our brain will have access to all the information. And what do you think about this? Well, Dr. Kurzweil is a very advanced futurist, a very well-known futurist, and his uh, forecasts, his descriptions of the future are very, uh, uh, very ambitious. Uh, they tend to place great deal of faith and trust in our ability to create technologies to do exactly what you're talking about. Uh, secondly, however, uh, it, I don't think it's necessary that we have AI connected to our brains, although that would be quicker. We now have a form of augmented reality in our hands, in our cell phones, and in our computers, so that we are actually simulating what it would look like if we connected the phone to the brain. Well, the phone is connected to the brain through our eyes and through our reading and through our, our, our knowing. So that's just a different channel. Uh, I don't think that fundamentally changes the fact that, yes, we have most of the information we need, the data we need, the information online. What we don't have online is what to do with it what the skills are that we need to develop to be able to use that information for our purposes and to make the world better. Uh, that I don't think is necessarily going to be on the cell phone, on the smartphone, or connected to our brains. We're still going to have to develop the skills to use that information for purpose. Okay, interesting answer. So, Peter, thank you very much for answering my questions. And if there's anything you would like to add or have any advice for Gen Z futurists, please share with us. Well, this is an opportunity for us to think big. 
to think about things which were have been around for a very long time, which might not stay around after the virus is over. I think the fact that most teachers and students are being forced into an online environment will not mean that everybody stays online forever, but we might have more of a blend of what is valuable for online learning and what is valuable for face-to-face -face learning, which could transform education. Uh, because if we are just going to uh, teach in a face-to-face -face manner, it's good, but it's also limited. So now we're opening up the possibilities for a lot more effectiveness, really, uh, by using both face-to-face -face when it's appropriate and online when it's appropriate. So it's been my pleasure, Arsam, to, to be with you, and I look forward to your future and the future of the Gen Z movement. It's been a pleasure for me, too. And please tell us, where can we find more about you? Okay, our, our website is www.teachthefuture.org. And I would be happy to uh, respond. There's a chance to put comments in there. Uh, and my email is peter at teachthefuture.org. I'd be happy to respond to anyone who has questions or comments about this podcast there as well. So it's been a pleasure to be with you, Arsan. Thank you very much. I thank you very much. I thank you for your time, Peter. Thank you for listening to Gen Z Futurists Podcast. You can find more about us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter if you just Google Gen Z Futurists. Please go to our website, genzfuturists.com, and send me any questions you have by voicemail and let me know what topic do you want me to talk about and which futurist do you like to be in my podcast. Best futures for all and let the dreams come true.